0: Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts, Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley and Sarantis Klamidis from O-Link Proteomics, talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy and
1: Sarantis. Hello
2: everybody, I- I'm Sarantis and together today with uh, Dale and Cindy for another episode uh, for another episode of our great podcast, Protein C Proximity. We are all very happy to have like a guest, Professor Johan Sveng. Uh, Professor Johan Sveng, uh, is uh, holding a position at the University of KTH uh, University. And today he's a protein expert and he's a professor in translational proteomics. And today we'll discuss a little bit about his uh, new research, about his success interest and how proteins can enable multiomics approaches actually Johan, uh, thank you very much for joining for today and I would like to start at start the discussion by asking you, what is a translation of proteomics for you
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah i guess I guess it, you know I, I think when when we started to thinking about the title for a professorship, you know translation was really a hot topic at the time to bring you know, something you've been doing in the lab into a clinical context. But I think it turns out to be much more than this is actually to explain also what, what we're doing in the lab to others so that the community can engage into our research and we can even find a broader utility. So it's it's still, you know, the, the idea of uh, sort of connecting the lab environment with uh, clinical and, and population health. Um, so I think hopefully one day, you know, we'll contribute to that, to that uh, activity.
2: That's great. And I saw also that you study biochemistry in Tubingen University of Tubingen. That's quite famous from the biochemistry worldwide. Do you have any story that you would like to record for your first paper, for example, being, uh, being in, in Tubingen? That would be great to hear. Uh, yeah, I
3: mean, uh, Tubing of course gave me. A, I think it was a fantastic time. Uh, we were very small number of students per semester. I had very close connection to to the professors. I got got a chance to go to Lindau to the Nobel laureate uh, meeting there, and you know, it it was really I think an inspirational uh, time. That's you know sort of created a lot of curiosity about science, and then after that I moved a little bit more into technology, so in the early 2000s when I did my Master and PhD I worked with, with Luminex based assays, but, which at that time was, you know, really, really new, uh, and then sort of that took me then to, to join the Protein Atlas in 2005 as a postdoc, and somehow I got stuck with this fantastic project, um, and yeah. I'm now <laughs> still around and learn every day something new about proteins. But, but yeah, I mean, just being there
1: and to work with Matthias, Ulin, and, and all the colleagues has been uh, truly inspirational. So, you've been at SciLife Labs then at 2005, and that was when it began at KTH. Is that correct? Yeah, SciLife Lab was inaugurated in 2010. So, actually, it
3: was my and three other groups that moved into the you know, building under construction. In, in I think it was in October 2010. So I'm, you know, I consider myself very much of an oldie when I think about, you know, my time at Syllab Lab. I've seen it change, grow, and now I think, you know, become a very prominent research institute in Europe. So it's, it's, I think, fantastic and very much, you know, also gave me opportunities to learn about other technologies and to, wow. to learn how can, you know, information about proteins be, be useful and and i have uh, many stories to tell but one of which is for instance i have a little bit of a side activity project around gpcrs and that for instance you know i think wouldn't have been possible if i would just be sitting somewhere in a lab and sure uh, but not be exposed to all
1: these different activities so. sure and for those not familiar uh, gpcrs are what uh, g coupled protein receptors gcprs is that correct G, G protein coupled receptors. G yeah. protein coupled receptors. I got to get my acronym straight. And, and it's a proteins, really important drug yeah. target. Right? Membrane proteins? Yeah, membrane proteins yes. that are important drug targets, correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there at the Sci Laboratories, well, you said that you were involved in the Human Protein Atlas way back in 2005. So, therefore, yes. the genome had just been finished in 2002, 2003. I mean, those must have been pretty exciting times because there was a big pivot and, and interest and focus on the proteome. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, of course. And then you know, at that time, you know, Matthias, uh, you know, and us producing all these antibodies was fairly unique, and people were like not really sure whether that would add any value to. So, you know the, the the field that's dominated by mass spectrometry, but but I think you know now we've shown and you know the the way that we've brought in new data, trying to understand the data that we generate, and then sort of give feedback to other data types of you know with localization of subcellular uh, compartmentization of proteins that I think you know are, are really super valuable and help us to disentangle you know the complex biology that that we live in. And, it's, you know, my, my real interest is, is proteins in the circulation, so that's even more complicated, you know, because <laughs> you're under sort of the, the constant uh, exchange of molecules in all, of, all bo- parts of the body, so it's, it's not as organized as looking at subcellular localizations, but, but it's still, you know, fascinating, and I guess, uh, yeah, but something I really sort of, uh, yeah, I fell in love with, and, and I really enjoy doing.
2: Great. How would you see Olin, in, in, because you are a biochemist, I'm guessing, I mean, you are mass spec uh, expert, how would you see Olin fitting on this pipeline of the mass spec? How would you see mass spec and Olin working together, from your experience, because you have a big experience in this field?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate to get to know Ulf Landerke many, many years back, and we've been sort of seeing each other on a regular basis, partly because Uppsala and Sweden are very close. And sort of been doing things in parallel, and of course, fantastic to see the journey that you know with the proximity extension, proximity ligation, and all these different different versions of of this concept. You know, I have now you know, I think been been the driver for for using antibodies as molecular tools. I mean, there was just a paper in Nature Methods. I think just the other day, again, antibodies conjugated with oligonucleotides. I think that's you know giving people such more a uh, bigger field to play and use these reagents. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of, of course, you know i 've seen how it started and and uh, we 've been sort of very late to the game. My lab or the unit that i 'm heading at Sci-Life Lab uh started to introduce uh, Oling in two thousand and seventeen, and since then we 've been super happy to have the system in house and and you know do this for 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 other users that come to Silef lab to to just want to have data or but also for our research so I think you know again. Any data type ha- adds a value to what we do, and I think Oling has truly you know enabled that us to do many things we we weren't able to before. So uh, it's fantastic.
0: I, I'm dying to ask what what is wh- in front of you, based on what what you see the opportunity in front of you with this technology, whatever technologies, right? What is it that you're most excited about for the future? Like, are there aspects of of um, the work that you've been doing, that you're a direction that you're going in, that you're, that you would like to share, that you're comfortable sharing. I just, um, I just want to know what, what's the what's the part that makes you um, go into flow, right? What do you, what do you, what do you want to do next?
3: Yeah, maybe sort of, I, you know, I started doing a lot of asset development myself when I, when, you know, I worked with Luminex 20 years back. It, that sounds a little bit silly when I say this, but it's 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 the truth. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, of course, that sort of has always some, been something to try something new, to maybe try something that's difficult, maybe not uh, immediately rewarding. Uh, but in the long term, something that, that could be, you know, very fruitful or something that makes you proud as a researcher so that you say, okay, you know, this is something I believed in and I see it's happening. So uh, the next sort of, you know, moment for me when I had this type of thinking was when COVID started and when lots of people went into you know serology testing or um, protein testing in the classical way when me and my colleagues at KTH we said let's you know let's try something different and use dried blood spots let's not ask people to come to the clinic let's send the the devices back to them uh, to their homes so they can collect bloods in in their in, their kitchen, in the kitchen and sofa you know wherever and send then the samples back to us to the lab where we can do the research so, so that I think, you know, really inspired a lot of new ways of, of doing this. I mean, when you think about, you know, cutting costs, simplifying workflows, freeing the time of people in the clinic, but also to think about, you know, doing health monitoring. I think people always often ask me what, what do I think is proteomics best? Used for, and I think it's 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 monitoring. It's like looking at who you are and looking how you change. That uh, and and I think you know this combination. I think now is sort of shaping towards something I really am passionate about. And and dry blood spots is a fantastic tool. Um, it's it's more challenging than doing it the classical way. There's so much more to learn, and then maybe even go further. And and uh, you know when Sarantis and I talked about this a couple of weeks back, also to look at you know even. Smaller sample volumes, looking at other body fluids such as interstitial fluid, you know, that could even you know tell us something extra that blood is not able and to we'd, tell us. So so we need
0: a we need a baseline to understand the reference of dried blood spots, right? To be making that comparison, right? Yes. Yeah, and and so enabling in areas yes. where we can't get a blood draw, you know, uh, a phlebotomist out to do a blood draw, right? I mean, it's I think that's yes. going to be really important. Yeah, Dale. He-
1: so, uh, if you can give us some background on dried blood spots, can you know, I'd appreciate it because my only familiarity with it was when I had my first child and, right, they did a heel prick and then they went ahead and used, right, the blood from that little lancet uh, onto a particular card. Is there something special about the material they use for a dried blood spot? And what are yeah, the challenges the- as far as working with proteins in that context? Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, so, so I think the, 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 let's say the, if you think from a, from an analytic, analytical perspective and a precision perspective, the, the dried blood spots your, your kids, uh, you know, donate, they are, you know, just put in a filter paper to do like a plus minus test. So it's really a binary answer you, you're after. Uh, but if you really want to look at subtle changes in, in the human, you know, phenotype, I think then you need to assure that the precision of the material you use in your system is there. So, so that you don't, I mean, normally when you have a dried blood, cell, but you get sort of a donut distribution of the red blood cells. So it really matters where you do the punch. So you want to avoid these type of things, especially if you want to do it at scale, if you want to do it consecutively. So, so, um, I started to work with a, a local company that was founded by one of my colleagues at, at KTH uh, and they use a microfluidic, you know, system to exactly collect 10 microliters. So just knowing that what you put into your system is 10 microliters. Of course, then there are different levels of hematocrit, there are different other things that you need to consider, but you at least eliminate some of the concerns that you have. So so that is that, I think, is really the key. And, of course, it's the simplicity of this procedure that you can assure it's easy for people to do, uh, and they, they manage even though they may not be trained um, I failed also when I did it the first times um, it's, but if, if you get used to it, it you, the quality is really excellent and I think there are also studies showing that more and more using other devices um, that are out there so, so I think now you have a new material which is sort of similar to plasma but it has some bonus and the question is how do you manage that bonus is it is it something that is a challenge it's a burden that Makes it difficult for you um, to to be analytically precise or does it open up opportunities that were not possible when you looked at uh, regular blood uh, plasma samples because of, let's say, um, the hematopoietic cells that are still there, they may leak out something that could be really exciting so it's it's this balance between things that I you think
2: you uh, can have a discussion a little bit about, about. Uh, with other proteomics experts about the dry blood spots. There's always a question about uh, how you control and normalize because I don't know from my experience, I mean, from what I have heard that actually it's not easy to have always the same type of dry blood spots. I'm guessing that there's a lot of var- varieties, a little variation coming there. Would you have any idea how one can normalize this data in order to have like longitudinal studies or studies that for different cohorts? Do you have any idea on that? It would be great to hear, actually.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, you know, analytical concepts that you can think about to do precision. You probably, similar to other studies, try to find some housekeeping, you know, markers. And, and, and we found some, for instance, that are related to skin, you know, so I mean, the skin, when you do the, you know, the, the lancet uh, punching through your upper layers of the skin, these proteins will probably always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, trying to figure out what, what are the markers that are constant. And then again, you know, what we talked about before, if you have a phenotype that is changing, then you, you can sort of do this resampling. You can learn from the resampling what, are, what are the constant constituents and what are those that are variable? What are those that are, that are unreliable? Uh, and again, you know, the more data you have, the easier it is to make that exercise because you can, you know, rank things in a much more refined way.
2: That's, I mean, also using, you mean using like housekeeping, like kind of housekeeping proteins in a way, right? To normalize. That's that's pretty much the idea around.
3: Yeah, exactly. And then of course, you know, it's just also a matter of uh, using different uh, statistical models to do, you know, normalization and things like this. I mean, it's whenever you have a variable sample source. Uh, I guess we have that also in plasma. You know, different different hemo- degrees of hemolysis, different fat content. Uh, different hydration states uh, you know they can influence so many things so i think you know just keeping your being on your toes when you look at the data and not get carried away too quickly (laughs) this is is, i think (laughs) something that's uh, very helpful
2: but coming back again and i'm (laughs) sure i monopolized the questions uh, coming back again to to see this uh, to see this question and what is you think there will be a new breakthrough you'll be like Going th- through new matrices like uh, interstitial fluid, for example, uh, do you think that new matrices will open new ways, and new research areas, and can learn a lot? What is your What is your feeling about that, or what is your vision?
3: Yeah, I think it's it's you know I think we should we should uh, accept the concept that not all material will be informative for all studies we do, right? So I think if we find the niche that that they are they are informative. So again, you know, this study we did on interstitial fluid, we also detected, for instance, antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 in interstitial fluid. And then of course, that is a proof of concept we did because we were curious. And we had material where we had plus minus as the phenotype. But imagine you're you're treating someone with melanoma with a biologics. How can you assure that the biologic actually reaches the area where it should act? Right? I think these things could, of course be much more informative than than looking at a blood sample where you say yeah it 's in your system, but we don 't know if it actually reached the point where it should be you know, doing the job so so again, these things uh, I think open up new ways and, and trying uh, these, uh, these uh, new methods of sample collection or, and then of course, having the perfect tool that analyzes these samples, and again, you know the fantastic uh, low-volume requirement of O-Link has, for us, been, you know, this is the perfect match, you know. Uh, so so we're super happy that we have a tool, that we can test these ideas, and we can demonstrate it's, it's actually feasible.
1: To return to what you're excited about in terms of these longitudinal studies, have you had much interaction with the UK Biobank in terms of, right, Samples at scale. I guess you don't have to worry about sort of the dried blood spot collection. I mean, that's really promising. But here it is, we have a, a huge data set. Have you been involved much with the UK Biobank?
3: Indirectly, yes. I mean, I, I've been talking to Chris Whelan and others, and of course, you know, when, when Carsten Zure, Mark McCarthy, and I started to write this uh, review in Nature Genetics a couple of years back. We thought of UK Biobank as the audience, you know, so, so that was really, you know, it was, it's basically, I, I, Mark McCarthy, uh, who I consider my mentor, uh, he was in Stockholm and I talked to him and said, Mark, you know, you're doing this fantastic work and I think proteomics, uh, like Carsten Sury has shown, is a perfect match with genetics. Can't we write up something as you know, bringing different perspectives together into one piece of uh, information, and and that's sort of how this whole idea started. We we actually called up Carson and say, Carson, we have this idea. Do you want to join? And this is sort of you know, (laughs) where we joined forces. I I learned so much about genetics, and and others learned about proteomics, and so so I think that that sort of was was of course uh, the 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 the, the dream right coming true as you know writing something that adds value, but learning something at the same time. And then, yeah, of course, UK Biobank being, being as, as has been shown, a fantastic uh, study now, you know, being powered by, by all these new data that is coming out. Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's a, often a one time point picture. But we want to create a movie of our lives, right? And the movie yeah. tells the story much better than the And we should probably
0: just explain Mark McCarthy, although I don't think he needs an introduction. He's such a uh, well-known figure in our world, certainly. But he's at Genentech, of course, but he's one of these geneticists that has has crossed over into industry. And, and just anything he um, focuses on, I like to keep an eye on because it moves and shakes, right? He was at... Um, the International Congress of Human Genetics, and so involved in the leadership, talking about how to increase diversity in genetics, and um, yeah, I love I love that Nature Genetics paper. So I just wanted to to say, you know, Karsten, you, um, Mark, I mean, it's just such a such a pleasure to have you even talking about our technology. It's very very exciting.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah, and I think you know, of course, we wanted to be as Agnostic and fair as possible, because because I think it's it's a every technology has its pros and cons, and and I think it's up to everyone to make a decision what is the best fit in the situation. Fair, Um, absolutely. But 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 they like they like I guess coming back to your question about longitudinal studies, um, which we've been also you know doing uh, locally, um, led by Matthias Olin and we've been working with Joran Bergstrom from the Skarpius cohort. You know, of course that that is when it all sort of comes to life, right? When you see a signature, you can understand stability, you can understand, you know, a person has had an infection, you know, things go up, things go down, but someone loses weight, things change. So that's when the information actually becomes
1: clearer. And that's a fascinating thing, right? To be able to look at this real-time biology, right? I mean, I appreciate you... Talking about this review paper uh, for the audience, right? The paper I believe you're talking about is "Genetics Meets Proteomics: Perspective for Large Population-Based Studies." It was in Nature Review Genetics in January 2021. Um, I, I'm trying to remember a different uh, Carson Sura review. I think you're talking about maybe one from 1990 uh, or 2017 or 2019. At any rate, um, you know, the ability to monitor real-time health, right, as people transition from a state of health to one of disease. I finished a book recently, The Age of Scientific Wellness, from Leroy Hood and and, um, uh, Nathan Nathan Price, Price, and it Mm -hmm. talked about these disease transitions, right, Mm -hmm. where if somebody's healthy, they don't have symptoms, but something's happening in the body, something's happening with their metabolism, something's happening with their metagenomics, something's happening with their proteomics mm-hmm. and the circulation. And uh, that is just this fascinating thing because you're talking about wellness, right? We need to be sampling well people. <laughs> and I think you know the UK Biobank gives this unique perspective. I'd like to hear uh, you know uh, your perspective on that.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, UK Bioband offers, as far as I understood, you know, a, a really a range of phenotypes. I assume you know some involvement was in you know, selecting particular, particular sort of disease groups and enriching them for those that are maybe more prevalent than others. But I mean, just to have that breadth is is, is really amazing because often you're limited to you know a certain certain sample collections and. You know, maybe I take another sort of open another bracket and take a little detour here. But, you know, again, when you do this dried blood spot random sampling that we did, you include everyone. You know, you don't include only the ones that are sick and they only come when they're sick. So, you know, okay, CRP, all the other friends, they're all already up. Right. But we want. So how do you get that, you know, that cross-sectional, that true sort of population based variance? And I think that's only possible in a coordinated way like. UK Biobank did, and and the other biobanks that, I mean, was it uh, all of us in the US and others are trying to do similar things. Uh, that when you learn, you know, this is the human variability with all the genetics, with lifestyle, with you know, social, uh, economic factors influencing um, who you are on a molecular level. So yeah, fantastic. And then having proteomics in that play is, of course, something I get particularly excited about.
1: Super. I mean, Coming and it's this combination,
2: right? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dale. Go, go, go first, go first.
1: Oh, no, Serantus, this is your show. Go right ahead, please. Okay, no, <laughs> thank you. No, I mean, uh, I'm talking about, um, you
2: mentioned about proteomics, genomics, and the disease, and uh, you, there's a preprint with Sander's Malastic, now you, it's recently came out, and they're going to be soon published, fingers crossed, the other hand. Uh, would you like to say a little bit of information about the, the research there and the cohort that you use and what's your main findings because uh, it's it's exciting to have to use like circulating proteome to identify prognosis for for breast cancer early prognosis for, for breast cancer I'm happy to hear a little bit more from you actually yeah,
3: yeah so so, uh, so we're talking about uh, the Karma cohort which is a Swedish uh, breast cancer population cohort that invites all women in Sweden undergoing mammography screening to, to participate. This is spearheaded by Per Hall and uh, Camilla Sene at Karolinska Institute. And with both, I've been collaborating already for, for quite some time. Uh, and we recently got some funding to continue our collaborations and then brought in also Olink uh, data that we generated in, in, in the lab uh, to you know, look at uh, breast cancer risk. So in, in addition to this paper that you mentioned, there's also another one that's uh, been circling around now, um, where we wanted to uh, primarily identify: you know, can we use proteins to, to predict uh, short-term risk of breast cancer? I mean, genetics can do that on a more longer period of time, but can, can proteins add something to it? And then, of course, you know, with Anderson and uh, you know the, the leader in the scallop consortium, and we wanted to also to bring also genetics into this and. Uh, i 'm not a geneticist, so you know for me again it 's always fascinating to see proteomics data in action uh, <laughs> which which is, is is what it you know makes makes me most proud because uh, that you know I think what what uh, what it is you know exciting to learn when other data inform you about your own data and when others take the data that you generate or that you, you know more about and, and they tell you new stories so yeah and then of course um, and this, this is a really, uh, the Kama code is really a population-based code, and it's, it's really unique in the sense that we're not only looking at, uh, you know, uh, breast cancer cases, we, we continuous or the, the study could continuously collects uh, sample information, uh, patient information or person information, and eventually some of these persons will become patients. And luckily then we would have, let's say, a blood sample from the last time when the patient was still a person, so to speak, when you think about these two categories. So we can go back in time and see: Are there any any things in the pre pre prior uh, prior, um, prior history that could lead towards okay? You are actually on a much different trajectory than than the remaining individuals. So that's you know all that people have different lives. We you know drugs played a role. Pre postmenopausal plays a role. Uh, hormonal, hormonal replacement therapy plays a role. So lots of things happen, but then genetics can tell you an unbiased story about all these these phenotypes, and that again, you know, gives a new angle to to this whole problem. And in this study, we used uh, Mendelian randomization and found five interesting proteins that you know presumably have a causal role in the in breast cancer, and of course. This is the study, now it's only, you know, 600 uh, individuals, but still it's a really very fine selection of of samples that could, you know, lead the way. And then again, taking the road that genetics has has taken, we can use data that exists in other biobanks and we can sort of, you know, look, do we see the same associations in these? And that's, of course, you know, Multi omics into when multi omics doesn't become a picture, it becomes a movie where we take different of these these
1: relationships. What a great (laughs) illustration and analogy! That's a great analogy, right? Not a picture, we've got a movie.
3: Yeah, and I think that's what we need, right? I mean, it's it's yeah, you know. You, you take a look at a picture and you, uh, you interpret so many things into this, right? And, and, you know, whether you know something about the painter or the, the time when the painting was made. But if you have a movie, it tells you much more, right? It tells you a dynamic that you can not really see in a, in, in a picture. But anyway, so so again, we, we, we had this opportunity and then uh, um, Rosa and Anders have been really leading uh, this uh, together with colleagues at Oling and and others to to sort of yeah, find out whether these things we identified in the Swedish karma study also we can see in UK Biobank or in Finch and it seems so to be the case and of course that gives much more certainty about that these are interesting findings to follow up and again I think what we talked I guess before this podcast started um that um, you know, then you can start to develop drugs, and you can see what actually happens when you give someone a drug that addresses one of these proteins. Then you again start a new movie, right? But on a different uh, on a different direction, uh, and again, then use proteomics to follow and see what happens. You know, so uh, that's fascinating, I think.
0: And so, who does that follow up? Like, what's that? Are you involved in that kind of a translate? I mean, you're obviously. Uh, Proteomics is your is your field, and I just wonder if there's a if there's another I don't know function that takes that to the clinical trial or to to the test bed to to try out these these drugs that affect these pathways.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I guess it, it would require that we have the right partners who would have the libraries to do drug screening on these, and it's sort of it's an army of new things to to, to engage. Um, but but of course, um, primarily to see that what we do in these in these studies has a, has a value. And then again, translate it back to, to functional studies, which again, you know, is, is something I, 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 would all, I, thought I think will also happen in the next couple of years is taking all these big, you know, biobank screenings back into some sort of functional studies to see, okay, is it really the molecule? Is it really the phenotype? Is it really you know the drug or the lifestyle effect? Uh, and that's going to be you know sort of looping back where where it started you know from cellular studies into into sort of systemic studies and then back into the wouldn't uh, it be so a, I think that's,
0: amazing that's to find a lifestyle effect for. that we never thought might have an a, a impact I yeah having the tools to be able to start parsing these things is it's fascinating.
1: So I mean to, yeah, to back maybe out I, a, a little l- bit what, yeah sorry. Oh, to talk a little bit about the study itself, right? This Nature Preprint looked at 300 individuals from this mammography study who had uh, breast cancer, right, diagnosed over those uh, two years that they took a look at them, and then you matched it with 300 normal individuals from that same study. You had genotype information, right? And the genotypes, right, combined with the uh, Explore 3000, right, in terms of the 2,900 proteins, so you had 600 individuals, 2,900 proteins, and then you discovered 800 PQTLs and uh, controlling 737 proteins. And I thought that was fascinating, right, that we have genetic control of 737 proteins They can identify the variants of PQTLs. And then you can drill down and get five likely causative proteins of breast cancer. Do I understand that correctly, that these five proteins you identified were Previously, not investigated or investigated in, in, with certain sort of weak associations of breast cancer, but the take-home message is that these five proteins were new discoveries.
3: Yeah, that's that's our understanding. I mean, it's of course maybe someone else has already figured this out, but not told the public about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, <laughs> and, and I think an important aspect is an important aspect is also to say that these 300 cases, they were not cases at the time of sampling. They were future cases. So when they were actually sampled, they were still considered, you know, persons, not patients. So, so that's again, also uh, to, to understand. And yeah. And and then we have this list of proteins that, you know, all tell, tell different stories. Um, And I think it's fascinating to be sort of in your mind, thinking about what, what actually the role is, but what, what we need now is of course, the hard data that
1: tells us this is, True, or this is actually the opposite. <laughs> and I guess to back up to the original karma study, which was out of KTH, right? There were some seventy thousand women who volunteered, right? In karolinska yeah, yeah. okay, seventy thousand women though, <laughs> over a couple of years. Is that correct? I think about right the yeah, the effort okay. involved
3: yeah, this is a nice thing about doing science in Sweden. I mean, uh, you know I originally come from Germany. it's a different it's a different system. Uh, but in Sweden, I mean maybe because of the Nobel Prize, maybe because of you know the public interest in science, there's much easier engagement. Uh, and in women in I think in other countries, you know have this regular sort of health checkup, so uh, there's this mammography screening program. and then, you get basically asked, "Do you want to participate?" And then Per Hull and his colleagues do the magic and keep people,
1: you know, engaged and, and <laughs> people follow, <laughs> which is, yeah. is, is super. Yeah. And then oh, you mentioned briefly, right, the power of replicating these results, because you know that I think is an important dimension of this paper, in that it wasn't just a single finding in a particular population, right. Uh, uh, that you were able to find, but you're actually able then to go back to, was it FinGen and the UK Biobank and then look at, right, the genotypes, look at the protein levels and then being able to actually show, yes, this connection holds up. I think that's pretty significant. Could you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, I think
3: that's, you know, I think again,
1: yeah, I think uh, I mean again, you know,
3: this is work spearheaded by Anders and also. But but again, what I see is you know you have this this uh, let's say you create this currency, let's say the, the the pQTLs. This is a currency you can go and you can pay in other in other countries or in other biobanks. You can use that currency to exchange information. And this is, I guess, you know, what genetics has really enabled us to do. And now proteomics is learning how it can do this. Uh, we have different technologies. They may have different outcomes, different information. But again, you can anchor it on the genetics. You can use the pQTLs. You can do the use them as instruments in Mendelian randomization to exchange this information, and that's, I mean, amazing.
1: Yeah, here it is. You're talking about empowering proteomics with genomics, right? (laughs) Turning it around instead of coming at, I mean, I come from a genomics background, so I think of it in terms of proteomics adding to the genomics. Here it is. You come from the proteomics background, and it's the genetics that is really enriching the findings. And I think that's great.
2: Jorgen, I have a a basic question, and it's very, really basic. We mentioned that one of the factors could be like uh, lifestyle, like environment, but also could be the hormones. Do you have, let's say, uh, relatives like uh, mother, sister, or twins that you can control in this cohort? I imagine there will be also some twins that you can, let's say, come, somehow discriminate and uh, identify the genetic background versus the environment. This is my first, the part of the first question, the first part of my question. The second part is, for sure, you check like post and pre menopausal Then have you seen differences and how? What your, what is your feedback on that? What is your experience around this type of observations?
3: Yeah, I mean, we have had previous, you know, studies that we published using other tech, our own technologies that we we used five, ten years ago, uh, where we specifically looked at, you know, uh, hormonal replacement therapy as one of the factors, which, to our surprise, had really a long-lasting effect on the women's uh, proteome, uh, which, again, you know, is 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 really quite quite significant, Um, and then, of course, that. Pre and post menopausal breast cancer. You know, again, uh, this is something I've been learning from my colleagues that I work with. is is very different. Um, then, of course, you need to disentangle.
0: So, I, I'm sorry. I want to click back to what you just said about uh, hormone replacement therapy having a lasting effect on the proteome. What is that? What do you mean by that? Meaning that it it alters, it shifts the proteome but what about the risk uh, the cancer risk right cuz that certainly the women's health study here in the US had led to some concerns around that i'm just curious if that's if that's part of of the Impact on the proteome, do you think, or maybe we yeah? Don't I mean, know.
3: what we found in this, this other study is that we had, you know, a subset of women that really we could sort of see that previous use of uh, of uh, hormones had a significant uh, um, change in their proteome and also increased their future risk that they were developing breast cancer. So, of course, this really sort of showed. But it, it's a it's a small subset of of all the women that we tested. So, again, it's it's. Yes, a great and, and thing I get
0: follow up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry.
3: What? What? I mean, of course, what we still need to understand is what is the effect of taking hormones, you know, and, and do you actually have you know remodeling of some, uh, some some reproductive pathways that you know consistently do something, and if they get sort of let's say pushed off track, you know, they will stay on that off track path for a longer period of time, and then there will be feedback loops with let's say the liver and other organs to. You know, just try to adapt with the with the with the sort of external trigger. Um so, so that was sort of you know part of our sort of understanding of, of the you know the use of drugs. But it again it showed that taking medication has a quite substantial effect on your proteome. Uh, and we found it fascinating that it actually seemed to be, you know, uh,
1: consistent over many years. A picture of real-time biology, the proteome, right? <laughs> And, you know, the uh, what we know about effects of certain treatments, what we know about effects of certain drugs, we're just scratching the surface, right? A number of our uh, pharma partners and customers of o right, are finding out so much with just a limited set of proteins, you know, they're not looking at the proteome, they might be looking at a panel, right, of, of 50 or 90 or what have you, uh, but there's just so much to learn about the biology.
0: And you started to ask, I think you were down a path of a couple of questions. I was curious.
2: You... Yeah, that's uh, I wanted mean, to a little bit ask uh, a really more philosophical question about if you have some, uh, let's say, uh, mother, sisters, you know, some relatives, or if you have some twins that you can follow, right? And you can see the change comes from genetic background or comes from the proteomics background or combination or either... Do you have any, any experience on that? Have you seen some some patterns around?
3: I don't think we necessarily looked into this, uh, but I've been working with another twin cohort from Sweden called TwinGene, which the name says, you know, has a quite uh, a clear focus on, on these aspects. Um, uh, and uh, no, not, not, not that I think in particular, but of course it's, it's again what we pass on to to our children is something that you know will be in the future helpful for them to know, um, and and sort of maybe they will change their lives when they know. Okay, I'm at a higher risk of a certain disease because both my parents passed away. I guess you see a lot of these breast cancer studies and, and effects in Iceland. I think right. Uh, so so. Uh, but not in these studies. I don't. I cannot recall that we actually specifically looked into this.
1: Yeah. What was I think really interesting about this particular paper on breast cancer is that you looked into so many different kinds of of connections, right? In terms of inherited risk, as well as right, because uh, you know the title is paper evaluating evaluation of circulating plasma proteins in breast cancer, the Mendelian randomization analysis you're actually looking at then the entire genetic backgrounds of unrelated individuals and just saying, right, what is elevating that particular risk? And I uh, understand these five proteins that were differentially regulated were basically lifetime lo- life t- uh, exposures, right? <laughs> that a person was exposed to a high level of protein throughout their whole life. And I think that's what makes this uh, really fascinating, right? The proteomics being informed, by the genetics controlling the levels of protein, and then saying these five proteins actually become drug targets, uh, which I thought was just a fascinating realm. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Johan, would you like to make any final comments? Of either I don't know <laughs> about you know where where we are, where we're going, um, working with Olink. Oh, I understand, right? We didn't even talk about a, a very famous uh, postdoc, famous at Olink. Philippa came out of your lab. I don't know if you want to talk about what it was like working with her. She is, uh, help a me, Cindy, superstar. with her title. She's director. Uh, yeah, She's a superstar. She, run,
0: she runs the field application <laughs> scientist team within the, uh, the European region. And she is... Absolutely magnificent. She's also helped lead uh, our discussions around uh, statistical analyses in the UK Biobank project. She's just such a, a magical human being to have at Olink. We're so lucky to have her. And she is a product launched out of... <laughs> Out of your lab, uh, at some point, uh, sh- you had an impact on on her trajectory. So, yes, please. Anything you have to say about about her would be greatly appreciated. She's, we had hoped we'd be able to have her on, but we weren't able to to get her into the to the timing that we had uh, going.
3: No, I mean, you know, all the success that she has now oh, is yeah. is because of her, you know her engagement her knowledge and her curiosity but yeah it was fantastic to work with her she was with me about one and a half two years uh, it was yeah it's inspirational and and fun to from the from the first to the last day and and i think you know uh, to see someone you know leaving the lab and making a, a such a wonderful uh, career is is, is fantastic I, I guess if my contribution is that I showed her all these different tools that we had in the lab, including o and others, and we talked a lot about the different assays, the different concepts. So if, if that has helped her in, in achieving, you know, this fantastic, um, things that she's doing with you, it makes me proud and happy. Uh, I think she deserves it, and and uh, I wish, of course, her all the success. And uh, hope anytime we see her, you know, we see each other on a, on a video call it's like like yeah, uh, old friends.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. So I mean,
0: yeah. you know, it's uh,
2: it's. I it's, think it's she fun. came out
0: absolutely <laughs> a leader, <laughs> and I think you know she has such great things to say about about the time that she spent in your lab, and I think that's that's pretty sweet. Thank you. That's great to hear.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jokin. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. It was fantastic. And uh, continue with this great
3: podcast. It's it's really a treasure. Thanks a lot for setting this up and running it.
0: Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Okay.
1: Well, I think that's it. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com.